Hey y'all, this is Culture Soup, where tech, culture, and business collide. It's a podcast that spoons up everything hot from social media. I'm your host, L. Michelle Smith, and each episode, we bring you some of the most notable and not yet notable thought leaders in tech, business, and culture. The year was 2016. I was very blessed and honored to be sent to the Executive Leadership Council's Strategic Pathways as a part of Leadership Week. In fact, it kicks off this week. And for the first time, it's virtual. I want to kick a shout out to Dr. Chris Butts who is the chief learning officer for the ELC. He has been able to successfully transfer so much of this content and improve on it for middle managers and general managers that have C-suite dreams. I mention that because that was the first time that I actually heard the word succession. And it came from a person who was training us at Strategic Pathways. Her name is Trudy Bourgeois. I consider Trudy to be one of my great mentor coaches because it was at that time that I became aware of the work that you need to do to understand your value so that you can understand where you can go in life. You can't really set your goals with clarity unless you know who you are and that's taking a look at what's come before you in your story, in your past, claiming all of it, the good and the bad. All that to be said, this is a word that many of us, and I'll say people of color, but especially black managers, not necessarily accustomed to hearing or using every day, but it's so important, especially for those of you who are considering how to get into executive leadership. You'll also find that I've written a book about the very topic, especially for women of color. So it only made sense for me when an invitation came my way to be a part of a panel just last week called Diversity in Action, Moving from Middle Management to the C-Suite. And it's specifically for black executives, but anybody could listen in. And we had some really nitty gritty discussions about what it takes to move up. And one of the words that continued to surface was the word succession. My book launches next Monday, August 10th, and it will be automatically downloaded to your Kindle if you pre-order today and moving up until the 10th, or you can order the paperback, which will be available beginning on August 10th on Amazon and also at my website, lmichellesmith.com. It's called No Thanks, Seven Ways to Say, I'll Just Include Myself, A Guide to Rockstar Leadership for Women of Color in the Workplace. It's the perfect time to have a panel like this because it tees up the conversation, the coaching, and the affirmations that are inside this book. The panel was pulled together by Creative Mark Marketing Consulting Firm. And that is spearheaded by Ms. Shakria Hall. I'm so proud of Shakria. She did a wonderful job in pulling together some expert voices from across the United States on this topic. I was very honored to be joined by Ms. Jasmine Weidman, who is VP of HR for Sony Music, Carl Crudup, who is a director of event sales at the Sacramento Kings and the global chief financial officer from Taco Bell, Leviathan Wynn. Without further ado, I bring you the panel, a rebroadcast to my global audience. We're heard in 38 countries on every continent, and this is a conversation that you can't miss. Without further ado... Moderated by Ms. Shakria Hall, the Diversity in Action panel, moving from middle management to the C-suite.
Insiders. Thank you all again for being here, offering all of your wisdom and experience for us and those of us joining today. Um, before we really get into some of the, the deep stuff, the heavy stuff, can you just, can you briefly walk us through um, just your journey, your professional journey and what your next steps might be? Uh, Michelle, can we start with you? Well, first of all, Shakria, thank you so much for having us today. It's an honor to take up this space and I'm glad to meet each and every one of you. I'm looking at your names right now. I won't call them all out, but it's good to see you. Um, my journey, just in a nutshell, I am a serial entrepreneur. I started an agency back in 2002 and uh, ran that for about a decade. But I did that after making vice president um, before the age of 30 in global agencies. And um, at that point, after I started a family, had a little baby girl whose name is Joni. You'll probably hear more about her as we keep talking because mm -hmm. the future for her and all of this that we're talking about today really applies to her. Um, and she's a Gen Zer, so she can relate to many of you. Um, I was sitting at home and re responded to a call, and it was a supervisor, my first supervisor, Fleischman Hillard, who was embedded at AT&T. And the call went something like this. We have this role. Um, not sure what you're doing right now. I know you had a baby. Congratulations. Um, but... What, who do you know that might be interested in head resumes? I'd hired people before. So <laughs> I went and I looked and I came back and the couple people that I thought might be great for it weren't available. So I let him know. And he said, well, actually why I called was if you put yourself forward, we'll stop the search. So I spent about six years at AT&T um, as their um, diversity and inclusion, corporate communications and integrated marketing uh, person right there in the global marketing organization. Um, you know, I mentioned that because a lot of people know me from that role, but I do have 20 years before that. And before I was at at and I was a senior vice president at Golan. So that about sums it up. Now I'm an executive and business coach for the Fortune 100. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so whoever wants to jump in next, Jasmine, do you want to take sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here today. Um, I, I have a unique journey in that, um, you know, many challenges throughout the way, but in short, um, I've been in HR all of my career and it started with an internship. I interned actually with a, a black woman in diversity and inclusion. And at the time, um, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what the corporate space felt like. I just knew that it was something that I wanted to do and she was so powerful and impactful. Um, so I went into the HR field very blind, not knowing what I was getting into. And really, um, I had to create my own story. And so that's what I've done. Um, I've served in several leadership roles within Fortune 100 companies, um, everything from W.W. W. Granger to Sears Holdings Corporation, um, Allstate, and now uh, switched over to the music industry about five years ago, um, came from Live Nation Entertainment in the leadership role there and now with Sony Music. Um, so a very unique journey coming from the rigid corporate space into uh, music entertainment. Yeah, I can imagine. What do you, can you tell us what your next step would be being a VP of Human Resources? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, we as people of color don't tend to get a lot of exposure in is the international space. Um, so that's something that I'm definitely going to actually be venturing into very soon since Sony is a global corporation. Mm -hmm. um, so that's probably a more immediate next step. But then following that, it will definitely be leading an HR function globally at the CHRO level. Nice. And that's, uh, you said CHRO level? So the, the Chief Human Resources Officer, yeah. um, which would be a C-suite role. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Leviathan. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. I don't know where the heck everyone is across the globe, but it's so good to see you all. Thank you for your time. 
Leviathan Wynn here. I am the Global Chief Financial Officer for uh, the Mighty, the Strong, the Fire, ex the Excellent, the, the Vibrant Taco Bell Brand Corporation, headquartered out here in Irvine, California. So glad to uh, you know be a part of the brand, be a part of uh, a great customer uh, experience that many of us are, have been a part of for many years. Uh, so a little bit about my journey. Actually, I'm from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, went to Texas A&M for undergrad, started my career on Wall Street, doing mergers and acquisitions, um, and then went into the investing sector where I largely was investing in uh, debt and equity of companies that were looking to merge, that were looking to acquire, uh, largely in the hospitality, retail, uh, restaurant, and business services sectors across the, the economy. Got my MBA from Wharton, uh, then went to a consulting firm called McKinsey, and uh, there continued to do more finance work, a lot of restructuring work, uh, was shipped around the globe from Asia to Mexico, Africa, the whole nine, had a great, great experience there. Uh, then I started a private equity fund, uh, sold my stake in that, uh, had a lot of success there. And then um, was the head of branch strategy for Chase Bank uh, for a couple of years, frankly, just to take a little break um and to keep myself a little, little mentally engaged and uh this came this opportunity came about from some relationships i had and i in my mckinsey days and uh, met the ceo and interviewed with the exec team and here i am I've, I've been in the role for about three and a half months now i currently live in california uh with my man carl he's representing the the north part of california i'm repping the south and uh, you know really excited to hear your questions and engage and answer any questions you guys you guys have today You're on, you're on mute. Oh, sorry about that. Yes, <laughs> thanks. Thank you for that, <laughs> Carl. <laughs> hey, uh, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. My name is Carl Crudup. Uh, just to give you a short history of, of my, my amazing journey that I've been really fortunate to be and work in, in an area that um, is very, very passionate and, and I'm excited about it. And that's the world of events. Um, I grew up in New Jersey um, on the Jersey Shore um, and, and quickly learned that um, I wanted to be great and events were something that um, I was super passionate about. Um, my, my first job out of school, I worked for a small um, black owned um, public relations and event management company um, in New York, New Lane Media. Um, and I had an amazing experience there that flourished in my career. And I was able to learn from some amazing black women about the world of events and public relations, and it just flourished me and, and, and wanted to, to do and see more. Um, so my journey grew um, within sports and entertainment. Um, I was fortunate enough to move to Dallas, Texas and hold a role working with the Dallas Cowboys at AT&T Stadium as director of private events there. Um, so it was, it was an amazing experience there in sports. Um, and now I'm the director for special event sales uh, here in Sacramento with the Sacramento Kings. Um, so I'm super excited to engage in this conversation today, allowing you to, to from, uh, learn from my personal experiences um, and as I hope to learn from all of these amazing panelists, their journeys and how I can too um, get to the levels um, in the C-suite as well. So thank you so much, Shakira, for having me. Of course. Yes, that's awesome. I can't wait to dig into some of the differences going from the NFL to the NBA, but I'll hold that for later, Carl. <laughs> I'll hold that for later. But the next question that I have, um, that it's, it's a general question, and it's really a, it was something that was published on LinkedIn. It was an article shared on LinkedIn that I didn't even intend to discuss, but it's, it mentioned a statistic. It was so important that I'm actually going to share at the end uh, of the discussion, but it mentioned that black professionals overall, we, we hold about 3% of all executive or senior level roles. We held 3% of executive or senior level roles in 2018. But since 1955, we've only held 15 of the Fortune 500 CEO roles. I didn't, I mean, that was, and I mentioned, I made a comment saying that that statistic was not shocking, but it was sobering, you know? And so I want to ask the panel, whoever wants to hop in on it first, what do you think when you hear that stat? And the first thing I think, if you don't mind, Shakria, is that the last Black woman that we saw at the helm of a Fortune 500 was Ursula Burns, and that was in 20, 
16 when she retired. We haven't seen one since, and she was the first. Wow. So um, that's not shocking to me. Um, even in a company that was as, as wonderfully represented in, on the Diversity Inc. Top 50, um, I think most recently inducted into the Hall of Fame and was number one, Black women were still very scant. Mm-hmm. Not just in the C-suite. There were none in the C-suite. Right. We had a chief diversity officer that you probably know very well, Sent Marshall, who's now at the Dallas Cowboys and uh, Dallas Mavericks. But even she didn't have direct reporting responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, several officers. Um, I say several. You could count them on one hand. Right. It's just not happening. There is a double paying black ceiling. And that's one of the reasons why I was inspired to get into this line of work, because coaching is one of those things that is shared with that level of individual and also for high potentials that they think are actually going to be in that succession plan. Mm -hmm. And there's a veil of mystery that happens for so many that are in senior management, general management. They just don't know. And to be honest, many of the people who make it there aren't sharing. Right. So this is a wonderful opportunity for us to kind of pierce that veil. Yeah. Yeah. Leviathan, do you have any input? Uh, you know, the reality is, um, you know, the system, you know, is a very competitive one, number one. Mm-hmm. So that goes without saying. You have people that have planned to be in the C-suite for two, three, five, ten years and have mechanically and strategically, you know, chest moved their way to be able to get there. So that's, that's the first thing. It's very competitive, number one. Number two, with that being said, um, that doesn't mean that you can't compete and you can't do the things that are necessary to put yourself in that position. So I hear those stats and frankly, I'm just like, well, great. That just means uh, I'm going to be a part of that statistic in the future and there's going to be others behind me and we're going to increase it from X percent to Y percent. So, you know, I just, my, my initial reaction is more forward thinking from the standpoint of, um, all right, what a, what a, what a way to change the game, what a way to make some history and what a way to uh, change the tapes and uh, make it a cool experience and a story that people can really get excited about and motivate them to, to push their lives and their careers forward in a really mighty way. So those are the things I think about when I, I, I frankly, I hear, hear that stat. Got it, got it, thank you. Um, my next question is really about this, this discussion is relatively new. So previously, I think it's safe to say even a few months back, the beginning of the year, we weren't collectively talking about racism in the workplace. Not so openly, not so candidly, you know, but then you know, the past few months with recent events and George Floyd was the, the spark, right? So with, with that happening, I want to, and also the reason why we didn't discuss it wasn't because we didn't care. It wasn't because we didn't experience it, but there was an element of fear there. So either it was a fear of being kind of called a stereotype or a fear of retribution, you know, retaliation, or that you wouldn't be believed, or that if you did tell HR, no one would be held accountable. And so I think it's safe to say that we all have had some experience with racism in some way, be it conscious bias, unconscious bias, flat out over you know, racism. So what I wanna ask you all is at your level, um, can you tell us about stories where you've experienced racism and how you were able to navigate through it to get us to where you, to get, where, to, get to where you are right now? I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead. And, and here's the thing. I think, um, you know, racism, we, we all know it exists in the workplace and outside of the workplace. Um, but we're now using this term called microaggressions. And that's the form in which we are experiencing racism and that we have experienced racism in the workplace. Um, And those microaggressions tend to be very subtle ways Mm -hmm. of preventing us from escalating our careers in corporate America. And so what tends to happen is we, 
we remove the authenticity of who we are. Um, we, we remove bringing our entire selves to work, A, out of fear, and B, to make others feel comfortable. And that's really what it boils down to. It boils down to their unconscious biases that tend to fall into the workplace. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about how have you navigated through that, um, the, the, the first point is awareness, being aware that it exists. And I think, you know, understanding the greater cause in all that we do as Black people in corporate America. Um, I think we're at a space now where we can be a little bit bold. We can have those conversations head on because the financial stability of organizations is now at stake. And that's a concept that has not necessarily been at play in the past. Mm -hmm. um, when, when companies' revenue is tied to um, the, the demographic of their workforce, they now have to shift the needle. And so um, I think the conversation today is extremely different than we've had in the past. However, we have all known it's there. That's never changed. Mm -hmm. And so dealing with it is, is not something that's ever going to be comfortable, right? So we go to work every day. We interface every day in leadership roles we are there in a space of uncomfort, but the point is, is that we're all doing it for a greater cause. And so that's kind of how I've maneuvered and dealt with it. So when we talk about microaggressions, which actually was a question that I was, um, that I'm, I'm glad you brought up, it's, it's a segue. It's not the question um, that I was going to ask, but I'll come back to that later. But when we're talking about microaggression, microaggressions, Specifically, it's, uh, I want to provide some examples because everybody might not be coming from the same place of understanding when we talk about that term. So when we say microaggressions to me, my experience has been um, ideas being stolen. So if I give someone an idea, you know, next thing I know, someone's taking credit for it. Or if I'm in a meeting talking over me, um, or if I'm in a meeting just ignoring my whole existence, uh, someone asking someone else a question that was about me while I'm sitting in the room. Um, those, that's, it. some might say that's not even microaggression. That's just flat out <laughs> aggressive. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I have dealt with it was really just to mention it in that space. When the, the time that someone talked to someone else about me while I was in the room, I said, hey, I'm right here. You can ask me that question. I'm, I'm you I'm the best person to answer that question because it's about me, right? So it's it's how it's getting used to. I think one of the skills that you have to develop in corporate America is the professional read. It's that professional is how you're able to stand up for yourself in a way that's not too much. You know, it's not. It's just it's it's professional, but you're still letting your point be known. That's and not how I am going to allow you to engage with me. And that's not okay. No, you can't touch my hair. <laughs> you know you what know, I mean? And if I jump in here, because I think we need to deal with the fear a little bit more before we can even confront it. Confront yeah. it. Mm -hmm. microaggressions, anti-race or, or anti-blackness, racism. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, these are words that are now reaching the corporate vernacular because of what uh, Jasmine has pointed out. But let's think about this fear. This fear mm -hmm. is rooted in a couple of different things. Um, one is generational. First of all, it's all cultural, okay? But it's generational first. And, and there are some white people that can actually relate to this. We don't do the workplace like our parents did the workplace, okay? First of all, um, if you're any color, if you were purple, you came out of school, you got your paper, right? You got that good job. Right. You stayed at that company and you stayed and you stayed and you stayed and you stayed. You didn't ruffle any feathers. You didn't rock the boat. You waited for somebody to tap you on the shoulder and then let you know that you've been promoted. If not, you stay there and you stay there and you collect your 401k, your pension, you retire. 25 years later, you go to Florida with your 2.5 kids and a dog and a grand 
child in, in, in you, you see, right? That's, that's the narrative that we were actually taught, if, especially if you're Gen Xer and probably some of the Gen Zers, millennials maybe a bit. But then the other thing that has happened is this. The millennials have come in, the Gen Zers have come in, and they said, nope, 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 not today. I need my paper, okay? So mm-hmm. first of all, I'm going to stay here about two years, and I'm going to move on. Yes. I'm going to go on and get my next best, best title. I'm going to get the money, okay? And at first, HR said, you know what? They've been job hopping, so we're not going to look <laughs> at them. But now, <laughs> right, Jasmine? Now right. they want to see that uh-huh. scope and breadth of diversity in in your background and experience and all of that. Mm -hmm. So now what we're seeing is in order to move up, you must be willing to move up and out. Now, some people are still in the late phases of that last bit of the 15, 20 years. Some of them are living that out, but let me tell you about another stat. Um, Before the pandemic, before George Floyd, Last year, the stat was that most companies weren't going to keep anybody but between three and five years. Mm. That's it. Okay. So you have to be able to move in a way that you feel secure. Mm -hmm. And most people don't feel that secure because they're holding on to that one job with the, with the, with their fingernails. Like (laughs) if I don't stay here, And I've noticed just in talking to my clients and surveying black females, we tend to think, oh my gosh, if I say something, what will they do to me? Mm-hmm. And the difference is this, a white man would say, well, if I did that, if I said that, what would I do? Okay, what could they do? Fire me, I'll go get another job. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the mindset that we need to have. And that means that we need to find our value outside of a corporate system that does not value us. We are not centered. And we'll talk about privilege in a minute. But when you figure out what the privilege is all about and who's centered and who's not, you have to work against that grain. And you've got to be able to knock down the fear. And that comes from understanding your value and having a tribe that will center you. Right. Mm-hmm. Really nicely said. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for that. Um, another point that I want to go back to that Jasmine said was about conformity versus authenticity. So oftentimes when you get to a certain level, um, I would say the the bulk of the diversity in corporate America is going to be in diversity and middle management, which is why we're having this discussion. That's where the diversity is. When you go up, that's when you get thinned out. But even in certain industries, you see that there is a lack of representation in technology or in, you know, well, in STEM, uh, you know, in uh, real estate, mortgage, you know, so there are instances where I come into a room and I'm the only woman, I'm the only black woman. And so speaking of the conformity versus authenticity, do you all feel that you have had to give up certain aspects of yourself, certain authentic aspects of yourself to fit inside this very Eurocentric view of professionalism? And I'll start with Carl. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I have a lot of intersectionalities here. I'm a gay black man working in, in, in pro sports, right? Um, so walking into the door of my first year working in sports, um, my first two years in, was in a sales role. Uh, I wasn't in a management role. And I walked onto the sales floor and no one looked like me. Mm-hmm. No one looked like me. No one moved like me. And I was thrusted into a world and was of, of, of white, the majority of white men, um, younger white males, who were all used to being and working in this environment. And I was trying to figure out, do I need to assimilate? Do I need to be like them? So the, I tried to assimilate. I tried to, to be like them, too, because I saw that their success um, and how they were able to climb was because they fit a, they, they fit a mold. Um, and... And, and being and working in that environment was, um, it's taxing and you have to give up my, I have to give up a lot of myself. And um, as the years went on, you know, I found myself in, in um, being passed over for a director role um, for our department. I was excelling as a sales manager um, and, 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 and bringing lots of revenue to the table and being able to, to articulate in a way to management that, hey, I'm interested in growing. I'm interested in thriving within this 
um, in, 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 this, in this company. And if you say you value me like you say you do on your, my evaluations, then why isn't that, that I am, why isn't that I'm moving to this role? So short story here is that they moved someone into the director role um, that I had vocally been interested in um, to someone who had very little qualifications in events um, and was just a, a, it was a disaster on the first four months on, on, on his job. And uh, he ended up sitting me down in his office and said, hey, I see how the team gravitates to you. They come to you with ideas. You know, I want you to lead our team. I'm just like, that's your job, sir. Like, that's what you're supposed to be here. So I, I took offense to that and I said, you know what? This is, this, this, this something isn't. So, you know, eventually he moved on um, and it didn't work out. And then, then I was asked to, to be in this role. And I'm just like, hmm, okay, yeah, this, this, this was, should have been the first move. Um, but when I did get in the role, I didn't get the director title and I sure as hell didn't get the pay. So there's a certain aspect of that that I still lost out on and I had, had to continue to prove myself. Um, and in my world, revenue speaks volumes and what I was able to bring to the table you know, eventually, you know, people saw that within me and I said, hey, another year and a half down the line, I want my pay, I want my title, because if you say you value me like you say you do, and, and you know, I'm getting hit up left and right from other entities looking to work with me, that's my value. That's how I was able to see what was in me and, and, and allow that to fully play out. I wish I had a mentor and someone else to show me that a little bit earlier, but that's yeah. the realness of, of what I went through to be able to come to this realization of, gosh, I don't fit in here. I've got to constantly prove myself. My numbers have to be up, right? And I, I'm all the while just, just trying to thrive in a, in a world and in, in an environment that's not for me. Right. Or something that looks like me. Right. So it was a few things that... Um, a few lessons, a few important takeaways from that story, which is one, it was you were able to succeed and thrive when you were authentic, your authentic self. And people were looking at you saying, how can I replicate it? And you were trying to fit into that mold of what they were doing. And they were looking to you because you were the most um, effective. You were in essence more successful just without the, <laughs> without the title. Um, and so it's that, that's really the, the key piece that I would, I want to make sure we understand is the value in authenticity, the value in being yourself and making sure that we're bringing our best professional selves to work and showing up in that way. Um, as opposed to trying to fit into someone else's idea of what success looks like or what leadership looks like to them, because I think that's, that is the value of diversity. Um, and we miss out on that when we try to fit into other aspects of what someone else is doing. Um, the other thing was really communicating that value and knowing the value that you hold, knowing when to leave. So when you don't fit in and you aren't being valued, it, it's time to go. Like Michelle was saying, uh, El Michelle was saying, like, you can't hold on to an opportunity, fight tooth and nail for an opportunity where you're not valued. So I, want, I wanted to make that clear, too, is if someone isn't giving you an opportunity, you can also find that elsewhere. And that's not a, and I just want to highlight, that is not a, that's not an easy thing to do. It was, it was, sure as hell, it wasn't easy for me to walk into, you know, EVP's office and say, and have this conversation about what I bring to the table and, mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm willing to, to jump ship mm -hmm. because I don't think that I'm being, you know, valued here. Um, yeah. So that is a very hard conversation to have. And I, I, I had to call a lot of people and, and bring all my ancestors into the room, right? <laughs> right? It is not easy to walk in a room, but when you feel and you've, you feel like you've got it and you can go elsewhere and be and thrive and, and you, when you have that in your heart, that's when you're willing and that's when you can walk in your room and, and, and be a boss, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, Michelle, do you have any thing to add to that? Yeah, that is exactly right. I wanted to back up and answer your question, but to piggyback on a lot of what Carl has said, the question was, have you ever felt like you needed to blend or fit in? Now, the interesting thing is that the word corporate means one body. <laughs> so what does that mean for diversity? They're actually at war, okay? And authenticity is code for diversity. 
Let's think about it, okay? If you're gonna be your own true self, you are automatically diverse and then you're already walking into this corporate space that is saying sameness. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you, to be authentic is an act of courage, first of all. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, I have never felt the need to blend. And let me tell you why. Authenticity or performance excellence is your passport to authenticity. You have to be killing it every time and bringing the data, like Carl said. And hopefully you don't have to have one of these meetings where you're proving yourself out. What helps is that you've proved it into sponsors mm -hmm. who can actually kick down doors for you. Now, most people, I think you heard some folks say, oh, she was the woman from AT&T. Yeah, I was the woman at AT&T with a curly strawberry blonde fro who got a nose ring right before she was promoted. <laughs> and what? It's because I knew that I had the goods, but I knew that I had the goods not because of that company and the work that I was doing there. I knew that I had 20 years before that. And if mm -hmm. they put me out on the street tomorrow, I can make money. Mm -hmm. You've got to be able to know your value. I, I, I can't emphasize it anymore, but you also got to be able to innovate. If you're one of these people that's just, okay, I'm, I'm managing the widgets. That's what I do. I'm managing the widgets and I'm good at it. Oh, I'm so good at it. No, they're looking for transformational leaders. That means people who will run to the risk. And the only way you can run to the risk yeah. is if you know that if you fail, not only will you fail forward and you learn, but if for some reason somebody says, oh, sorry, you're gone, that you will land on your feet again and you will be 2.0, yes. not just the original version. Okay. Okay, yeah, that, that yes. 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 I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. So, um, Leviathan, this next question is for you. And it really just, um, it's, it's, it's a good segue because we're talking about value. And so whenever we talk about value, uh, oftentimes it's, it's tied to, you know, of course, how successful you are in your role. But as the chief financial officer, I want to talk about the importance of tying your position and your, um, your success, your efficacy in your role to the bottom line. So how do you have those discussions? And is that even important to know your role in the overall financial success of the organization? Uh, so a few things. Number one, you are one of two positions in a company. You either generate revenue or you are an expense. Mm -hmm. Revenue minus expense equals profit. All day, every day, every organization. Do not forget that. That is rule number one, okay? If you're going to generate revenue, that means you must generate revenue. Yes. And you should probably be the best at it, particularly if you're of our persuasion, okay? Mm -hmm. Because no company exists in the absence of revenue, okay? So sales performance. Networking, calling, developing relationships, delivering your service, delivering your product excellently, okay? Revenue, expense. If you're gonna be in a support function like me, I don't generate revenue, I don't sell tacos, right? I don't, I don't, I don't sell and generate revenue from, from royalties, right? That's our franchisees, they pay us fees, that's how it works, right? But if you're gonna be expense, that means you gotta deliver the value proposition of that function, okay? For me, I own my P&L and my responsibility is to make sure I deliver profits to my shareholders. That's my job, okay? Now, how do I translate that into, like, how have I thought about translating that into my career and my decisions? You've got to think about value and what that means to the organization vis-a-vis -vis your relationships and your skill sets and your job, okay? A lot, oftentimes people, you know, want to come and say, oh, okay, how can I become CEO tomorrow? It's like, okay, well, what value have you delivered to the organization today? Mm -hmm. Okay. And that value is a function of your uh, efforts, like completing your task, getting it done early, right? But it's also a function of relationships. Okay. I, I often view it almost like dating. You know, you can meet someone and you can tell if you're vibing with a girl or if you're vibing with the dude that you kind of feel that energy, right? So the merger of that chemistry and that connection you have with people, their positions in the organization and the work product you're delivering 
the the overlap of those those dynamics are really what are the the foundation of creating roadmaps for you to advance in your career and advance inside of a corporation because the reality is delivering just on delivering is never enough you've got to have relationships inside of the organization above you and with people who have the influence who who I like to say who can write the check yeah okay cuz there are people who think they can write the check <laughs> there are people who actually write the check and, and it's <laughs> who has the power and who doesn't in the room and it's your responsibility to understand who those people are okay develop solid relationships with them and demonstrate value to them and to the organization simultaneously then you come with your ads then you come with your requests then you come with power because once why should i as a person deliver value to you when you haven't delivered value to me why should i do that when a corporation in itself is about creating value <laughs> in a vacuum the absence of value is waste yeah. and we all know what happens mm-hmm. inside yeah. of a corporation yeah. when you have waste it is eliminated with the quickness okay mm-hmm. so I, I approach, you know, the value proposition, not just do I need to own a P&L. No, you don't need to own a P&L. Everyone can't own a P&L, right? But everyone can demonstrate value in a very specific way that is germane to their function, whether they're supporting in a function or whether they're generating revenue for the function. Very simple. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, my next question for Leviathan is how important is it to oversee a budget of a division? So to oversee a division's budget, especially when we're trying to demonstrate our ability to move up into that next role. Is that even important? Yeah, look, it depends. So in the C-suite, you have different functions, right? In our corporation, we have a chief marketing officer, right? We have a CFO, Mm -hmm. we have a chief operating officer, your standard suite of C-suite roles, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, it really depends on what your objective is and what the culture of your company is. And um, and when I say culture of your company, meaning in our company, you know, finance people and marketing people are traditionally the ones that, you know, wind up becoming CEOs or, or owning P&Ls of territories, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if I go to P&G, that'll be different, right? Because that's almost exclusively marketers that own P&Ls and run budgets and, and own budgets in that, in that company. But if I go to Pfizer, it's the pharmaceutical sales reps who pull the weight in that organization, right? So it just really depends on the culture of the company and it depends really on the product that you're selling and what you're delivering. Um, is it absolutely mission critical? No, but to the extent you have that experience, no corporation will turn a blind eye to someone that has been um, given the opportunity to control and influence its resources. Capital right. is the most important resource of a corporation. So yeah. if you are given the responsibility and given um, the chance to shepherd and manage the inflow and the use of that capital in pursuit of creating more of it over the course of a year, that's never a bad thing, right? But don't think of it necessarily as, I've never, I've, I've never owned a PL, but I'm CFO talking about, okay. Now, do I know some accounting? Sure, right? But that was, I guarantee you, not a prerequisite for me being in this role. Being in this role is all about relationships, influence, which I would argue is, is the most important thing, um, and being able to coalesce folks and drive towards, towards an objective. So um, I wouldn't put, I mean, look, it's great if you get the opportunity to own PL, of course, do it, do it well, deliver your revenue, deliver your profits, and do so with a smile and take on more. Right, but uh, I wouldn't think of it as as absolutely mission critical because you just see a lot of CEOs tend to have P&L experience, right? But uh, not all of them do. Got you it. look at Ken Frazier, for example. Ken Frazier, who's the CEO of Merck. Ken Frazier was a lawyer. Okay, he was a lawyer for Merck for many years, but he won a lot of cases. He protected the firm in, in a lot of really high-profile cases, and through that experience, he now he's the CEO of Merck, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at, uh, who's another example? Um, you know, Gide, who was previously uh, the C, uh, CEO of uh, Tapestry, uh, the parent company for Kate Spade and for um, 
uh, and for um, one of the other brands, I forget the other brands, but Case Bay is like the main the main brand there. But he he never ran a consumer products company before. He sat on the board. He's a private equity guy. He's a ex Goldman Sachs you know finance guy, right? Yeah. But he's never owned a PL before, so it's not mission critical, but it certainly helps. Got it. Okay. Um, thanks for that. I the next question I have is about the chief diversity officer roles. Because although we've had some issues with access to the C-suite, it seems like that's the hot thing to do now is when you actually see um, uh, a person of color, specifically a black person in the C-suite, they are getting access to the chief diversity officer role, but it's also a high turnover. I have friends who have had the opportunities to enter into those positions and they, they, are, they don't want to because they feel stuck uh, or you know, they don't want to be pigeonholed into that position forever and they feel like it doesn't have any true authority. So I want to talk, and this question is for you, Al Michelle, I want to ask you about um, the importance of that role and ways that that position can be impactful. It's interesting. Um, <laughs> I was around in this Fortune 9 when uh, Sint Marshall became Chief Diversity Officer at at and and she was literally one of the first at that tier of you know size companies many people weren't they weren't many many organizations did not have them now you can't swing a you know <laughs> a fendi bag and not hit one right they're everywhere they're everywhere um and over time it has become a question how effective are they and do does that role need to be rethought i don't have an answer for that just yet but from the career perspective and the succession perspective and the career growth perspective, I have a lot of questions. And it's because primarily more and more research has shown that black women are taking these more than anybody. Mm -hmm. And we're being offered these and we are jumping at it like, oh girl, you know, this is it. Um, but there's some questions that you need to ask before you take on that role. And I'm not saying don't take the role, I'm saying ask questions. The first thing you need to ask is, where is my direct line to the chairman? If I'm not a DRO, can I pick up the phone? Can I walk over to his office? Do I have that direct line of communication with the CEO? Because mm -hmm. it's one thing to have the title and not be able to get stuff done. Yes. Now, what was interesting about Sense role, she was chief diversity officer and senior vice president of human resources. Mm -hmm. So she could think it up and do it all at the same time. Okay. Right. That's not always the case. That's the other question you need to ask. How was this power, you know, actually delegated to me? Am I, am I able to do some things? Does this role allow me to execute as fast as I can think of the ideas? Mm -hmm. The other question you need to ask is what is the succession plan? What's next for me? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. of this turnover that we're seeing, and that's mainly because things aren't getting fixed, okay? <laughs> They're not getting fixed. Right. They're the same. Yeah, incremental change here and there, but not much. Mm -hmm. What's the plan for me? Because how many of these chief diversity officers end up in another CX role at the same company? Yeah. Have you seen it? <laughs> no. We need to ask these questions. Oh. I keep yeah, mentioning Scent. Scent is one of my sponsors. She's one of my, I'm, some people call me Scent Junior. Okay, let's just put that out there. But Scent is one of the only ones that I know that actually did a leapfrog and ended up as a CEO in a totally different industry. But mind you, making a definite impact. These are the rarities, but these are the rock star leaders. They aren't just everyday folks going after a, a diversity role. Now, some of these diversity roles are in all sorts of different business units. They aren't def always in HR. I had one in the global marketing organization. There's multicultural marketing. You could be in CSR and have a diversity role. Same question you need to ask. Mm -hmm. What is my path? What is my compensation? Because awesome. <laughs> you tend to create and create and create and do a lot of things breaking your neck for people, stunning for the company, and they're not stunning for you. <laughs> right. You need to ask these questions. And though for those of you that don't have the title, who, thanks to Black Lives Matter and this global civil rights movement, 
got tapped on the shoulder that said, we want you to lead the committee for diversity. <laughs> I need you to ask these questions now. Mm-hmm. Right. What's in it for me, ultimately? What's my title going to be? Is there a title? Is there compensation? Because you just gave me a whole new role. Are you going to give me access to agencies and consultants who can actually help me get smart in this area? Mm-hmm. Ask the questions. And what's the career path? Yeah, they'll satiate you with those little calls from the CEO, he might give you a call. You go, oh. And some of us get romanced by this. Because this is the last thing because it's so true. true. That's us. <laughs> so true. I've just heard that story not that long ago. <laughs> it's funny. Um, but we're, we're running out of time. I knew this time will fly. And there are some critical questions that I have for you because they are action items. And so the, two, the first question um, would be the difference between the skill set, hard skills and soft skills, from those who are in middle management to those who are in the C-suite. Leviathan mentioned it briefly because he basically said it's about your relationships, you know, and being able to really demonstrate and communicate your your value, right? But I want to know what are some of the differences and how someone can prep to elevate themselves from that middle manager to that C-suite position. And whoever wants to start. Yeah, I I would say one of the things that's so critical that I think we don't do a good enough job at, and that's getting a sponsor. And sponsorship is different from a mentor, right? We tend to go in organizations, who's my mentor? I need a mentor. But that those two aren't the same. The sponsor to Leviathan's point is the person that can cut the check, that can have the influence, that can make the decisions, that can bring people up, that can promote people. And so identifying an executive sponsor before you you get into the soft skills and positioning yourself properly, et cetera, you have to have a sponsor. Mm -hmm. And that person will help to bring you through the organization. and ensure that you are paid equitably, ensure that, you know, you're promoted in line with your peers, et cetera. Um, So I think that that is critical. And then I think the question after that becomes, well, how do I get a sponsor? And part of the skill set that you're referencing is it's the relationship piece. It's being bold. It's stepping out of our comfort zones. We as Black people don't always do that. You know, some, some of us have the mindset of, you know, I'm not kissing anybody's butt. I'm not doing that. I'm not having those conversations. But yeah. it's not that. It's, it's being proactive and driving your career and ensuring that as you're in this corporate space, you have that support and advocacy to get to that next level. Yes. Yeah, let me just say a few things. Look, here's the reality, guys. You can look at it as assimilation or you can look at it as expansion, okay? Facts. The reality is the corporate environment will not change for you. It's not going to. It'll be the way it is. It's going to be the way it is the moment you were born. It's going to be the way it is the moment you leave this earth. That's right. Okay? So you have a choice. You can, you know, Simulate whatever word you want to use, or you can expand, okay? Expand your horizons, expand your experiences, expand your point of view, okay? And if that includes you picking up a golf club and swinging some balls, that's what it is, right? And that's an experience you may not have had last year that you now have that you can take into a conversation that now adds a connection point to you and someone who could be a sponsor. Mm-hmm. So either you're going to have the sponsorship or you're not, okay? And oftentimes to get the sponsorship, You've got to engage in things and do things um, that are outside of your comfort zone to expand your production possibilities, to expand Mm -hmm. your exposure, to expand your capabilities, to expand your experience. And your your goal is to maximize the connection points you have with people, okay? And that's what it's about. It's Mm -hmm. not about, oh, I'm not selling out. Okay. Mm -hmm. If that's the outcome you want, we know what that outcome looks like. <laughs> right. Okay? And it well, can I jump in? Getting pulled up because I guarantee yeah. you right now, guys, strangers don't get pulled up in organizations. Mm. That's not that's, how it works. That's exactly where I was going next, Leviathan. Yeah. There is a likability factor that happens. 
when mm-hmm. succession conversations happen, you're going to be surprised. They're not going to talk about your performance because that's, that's something that's already dealt with. Yeah. You need to make Can sure that that's not even a... What you didn't use the word succession. Yes. I'm going to ask everyone on this call. Okay, let's pretend you're a king or you're a queen of Wakanda. Okay, and we're talking <laughs> about succession. Who do you want to succeed your throne? A stranger or someone who is similar to you? Yeah. Someone who is of your DNA, of your cut, of your experience, right? Similarity breeds comfort. Absolutely. That's comfort, right? That is why yeah, and so this is why I was talking about likability. Yeah. Well, you know, when I when I started having succession conversations in my lifetime with the senior leadership, it was about um, tell me about your family. Um, what's your dad's name? I think I heard you say something about he plays table tennis. Then the next time you talk to them, they're asking about something else. So are you dating? You know, wasn't there a young man with you the last time? It's <laughs> like ability, and you literally, literally have to walk the tightrope of walking proudly in your power and in your authenticity because by the way that's the thing that differentiates you too once Mm -hmm. you get to a certain level everybody's got all these dope credentials okay Mm -hmm. and there's some things you can't even correct folks been to wharton (laughs) folks been to all these fancy schools you didn't know when you get to this level nobody's asking about those things anymore it's who they want to work with everybody Mm -hmm. got a jump shot at this level guys Mm -hmm. So before if before we wrap up, it's a couple of things, and I'm, I'm I feel like we would need to have a follow up call to touch on some more aspects because the issue with um, wanting to kind of pass the throne to someone who's similar is that it's a, it's at a disadvantage. Is what does that similarity mean? You know, because we we don't want the same mold. We're not. I mean, that's well, and Leviathan, I mean, you can qualify this. Someone of the same DNA doesn't necessarily have to look like me. In fact, yeah, the gentleman that was DNA, having not, this not conversation physical. with me no, no, was no, no, an old no. white dude. Right. Experiential, right. cultural DNA. That's what okay. I mean. Not, Thank no. you. Thank you for clarifying. And I wanted yeah, that yeah, to be yeah. known. But the other thing I want to know before we go is ways. So the proper time and place to communicate your value is being ready for those at your annual reviews. So, yes. Mm. It's, and so there are times where we don't really take control of our own um, our, our own ability to move up. Right. And so we're not, we're not coming armed during these annual reviews. So how can we hold ourselves accountable and our managers accountable to make sure we move up in the way that we want to? I'll jump Michelle. in and then I'm going to let somebody else speak. But okay. if you're waiting for your annual review to communicate your value, you've already missed the boat. Mm-hmm. That needs to be communicated day in and day out. Ultimately your value proposition is the one problem that you solve and it's your one thing and people should be able to spit that back at you if people don't know what you do and you're damn good at mm-hmm. you're you've lost the battle so you need to be mm-hmm. creating experiences intentionally online offline in life at work that mm-hmm. line up with your value proposition all the time 360 can't be at the if you wait to the review you you toast yeah. <laughs> and, and and really quick, I just want to add, and that's part of your brand, right? Yes. And so when we're walking through these corporations, we are a brand. Mm-hmm. And being a brand isn't sitting down, completing your task, your checklist, and then walking out at five. Being a brand is changing the mode, innovating, and like others have said on the panel, really showing what your value is to the corporation and why they need to have you out of all people here. And that should be clear and concise in and throughout the organization. When is it time to leave? How long is it too long to be in middle management? Well, based on that stat I gave you, (laughs) you really shouldn't be in a role more than 18 months before you're looking to do something else. Okay. That's today's stat, but we have a VP of HR here. (laughs) Yeah, I would say, I mean, here's the reality. We have a lot of people that are comfortable being in the role that they're in, right? So it goes back to what that person's desires are, right? If you're on the fast track, I mean, I've been in roles for, for six months to a year, to the point where I'm like, it's, it's time for the next thing, mm-hmm. it's time for the next thing. And I've created my own fast track. 
I am very young and I'm a VP of HR. So that in and of itself shows my fast track. And I'm not going to be here long. I've already kind of put that stake in the ground. So um, it's it's whatever <laughs> it's whatever that individual so desires for their career. But you have to own that because no one's going to bring your career along. No one. Yes. And that is where we need to end it. I did send two <laughs> links out to, and I will have to take note of all your questions and email them out to you all. Um, I did make, uh, I sent this out to you. It's, it's a couple references that really talk in detail, a couple articles about being black in corporate America. So make sure you all copy the link and kind of dig into some of the information there. It's a lot of good information, you know, stats, but it's also action items that you can, either incorporate for yourself or you can also share with your, you know, your leaders. And if you are executives within your organization, it'll give you some pointers on how to diversify your executive leadership team as well. So I am so excited for this discussion. This was just as, this is just as great as I had hoped. And <laughs> I feel like we need a part two, but I'll keep you all posted if we decide to make that happen. Thank you panelists. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye y'all. Bye-bye. What a compelling conversation with the panelists from Diversity in Action. Moving from the middle management to the C-suite. Thank you, Shakria, Paul, and Creative Mark for that compelling conversation. And I understand there's going to be a part two. Find us online at theculturesoup.com, on Instagram and Twitter at theculturesoup, and on Facebook at The Culture Soup Podcast. Until next week. The Culture Soup Podcast is a production of No Size Communication, LLC. The Culture Soup Podcast is a registered trademark of No Silos Communications, LLC.